I'm McKinney Smith. After going through a divorce, my sister passing away, experiencing narcissistic abuse, and some significant health scares, I realized through sharing my story that I wasn't alone in my suffering. Suffering, subjective distress generated by the experience of being out of balance. In a deep dive to holistically heal mind, body, and soul is where I discovered peace, clarity, and connection. It is impossible to be truly wise without some real-life hardship, and we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without making it through, and most importantly, through it together. Social connection builds resilience, and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom, and that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and others witnessing and participating in your healing, and hope for your community. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. Thank you for joining us on the Heal Her podcast, H-E-A-L, Honor, Elevate, and Love Her podcast formerly known as the Iwaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show globally, where we have conversations with extraordinary women on their journey towards wholeness and harmony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. As a certified mindset coach guiding women towards peace, clarity, and connection within, supporting the direction of the system toward wholeness, my goal here is to help you thrive. Nam Kiwanuka is an award-winning journalist and the co-host of The Agenda with Steve Pykin, host of TVO's latest project, The Thread with Nam Kiwanuka, and host of The Agenda in the summer. Nam also co-hosts TVO's On Docs podcast and contributes to columns to TVO.org. Nam Kiwanuka was born in Uganda and lived in a refugee camp in Kenya before moving to Canada. She's worked with Sportsnet, BET, Much Music, and BBC's Focus on Africa. She's been seen on CBC, HuffPost, and more. So please welcome to the show, Nam Kiwanuka. Hi, Mikini. How are you? I am good, Nam. Thank you so much for... Just I have to say that uh, you've been very patient with me because we've been trying to make this happen for a while. So thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. I mean, I've been following you for so long and I'm always inspired by the women around me that I see that are making an impact and that are doing things. And I've been wanting to have this conversation for so long. And like you said, I've been very patient because I know, you know, I'm the long game here. <laughs> So I appreciate you sharing your time with us today. Thank you. It's wild because uh, I think what you're doing is fantastic. We're always like chatting on uh, Instagram. And one of the questions that I, I don't know, I think when I became a parent, I was super naive as to how time consuming it is. And uh, I had a lot of, uh, I was kind of judgmental (laughs) towards some of my friends with kids. Um, but I changed. I've learned my way. <laughs> I repent. I'm, I'm, you know. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how much you have to do in a day when you are a parent and mm-hmm. then work and all the things. So, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what what's funny is I've ha- so I have three kids and I became a single mom when my youngest was like four. And 
I jumped straight into full-time entrepreneurship and people were like, how are you a mom? Like, how, how, how do you take care of your kids and work all these hours and do all these things you're doing? And I'm like, well, most of the times they were with me. <laughs> and then the other time, you know, their, their dad and stuff was, was helping. But it's interesting now in 2023, like all the moms that are now talking about, you know, the chaos behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, trying to well, there's no there's no balance per se, but trying to live in harmony with, mm-hmm. <laughs> with trying to do all the things. So I, I think it's interesting what you're saying. Um, I, I'm trying my best not to interview you. That's what I, <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to step on your toes. This is a full but, conversation, so anywhere you want yeah. to go. <laughs> but I think it's so interesting what you said. I think there's a lot of maybe. It feels as if right now there's an opportunity for um, parents, especially mothers, to be open about what it's like behind the scenes. And I find it really interesting that we haven't had these conversations before because there seems to be this kind of shame that if you don't have your stuff together behind the scenes, then you're it's like some kind of indication that you're not a good uh, parent, you're not a good mom, and which isn't the truth. When I was pregnant and I had my first, I was a little annoyed that my friends who had had kids weren't as honest with me Mm -hmm. as they should have been. And I get it. You don't want to having like being pregnant and giving birth. You cannot tell, you cannot prepare someone for that until it happens for themselves because everybody's different and everyone's unique and the birthing experience is uh, very unique. But I think for black women, it's there's a lot of similarities of the things that happen to us when it's time to give birth. And I wish people, I think more people are being honest about it because Serena Williams and Beyonce have spoken about how challenging it is to get medical uh, professionals to listen to you when you're at your most vulnerable. And I think for me, that was the most shocking moment for me. And I wish I didn't join. I didn't that shouldn't have been my introduction to motherhood. Mm. Yes. Once you were pregnant, I was with my son. I was sick throughout the whole thing. I was actually having this conversation with him recently when he turned 12. And I said to him, I was um, throwing up all the time. I was, I was in bed, sick. And if I had another child before him, I don't know what would have happened to that (laughs) child because that child would have been neglected. But I didn't realize my body would respond in that way. And then when it's time to give birth, all these things happened. And I just wish someone had said, hey, heads up. But even now, some of my friends who've become pregnant, I don't want to take away that joy and that anticipation and muddy it up with all these mm-hmm. babies, could bees. You know, I want them mm-hmm. to go in there with an open heart and not to kind of like jinx it. You know, but it's not about jinxing because when we look at the studies and the data, you know, black women are not treated very well. And when you're on an operating table like I was and completely vulnerable, it was one of those most it was it was a moment for me that just I look back at it. And my first few months of motherhood, my first few years of motherhood were not what I wanted Mm. because I was just kind of like in shock and the way that. I was treated by the nurses. My son almost died. No one was listening to me. And 
you know, I remember one night um, my son um, was born via uh, emergency C-section. Do you remember those? I don't know if you attended those uh, birthing classes where, you know, they talk about, oh, your baby's like the size of a grape and it's the size (laughs) of a plum and this is how you breathe. And it was very, you know, I have my son in the UK and in the UK, when you have a child, they still like use cotton and wool, like to like they use uh, cotton balls and water to wipe their bums. They don't want to use like the wipes. They're very, you know, um, Mm -hmm. holistic in a way and just kind of like natural. Your baby's skin is very sensitive. So when I was doing these birthing classes, they didn't even mention the possibility of you having like a C-section, an emergency C-section. They made it sound as if we are not going to talk about that because it's natural as if you're, if you're having a C-section, it's like you're cheating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was, they just spoke about, Oh yeah, uh, just push the way you push and your body's going to do it. Your body knows what to do. No medication kind of like shamed it like before. So I don't know if other women were in that class thinking, Oh, you know, I wanted to get a little bit of medicine, but now I can't because maybe that's being a bad mom. But we never even spoke about the possibility of needing an emergency C-section, which I needed. So I had no idea what was happening because I'm the kind of person that's like, I would study. I would like, you know, (laughs) prepare for that exam of giving birth. Um, And so when it happened, I, I, I didn't even, I felt like I left my body and I was like, I can't panic. Like when they were giving me the epidural, actually they ended up giving me a spinal because it was emergency. Anyway, long story short, after my son was born, he ended up in NICU. But before they moved him to NICU, they put us in uh, a room together with three other moms. And in the UK, they have like um, the hospital that I was at. They have a room for women who had traumatic births and women who had like, I guess, the natural, <laughs> the natural way. And... Um, it, it, thinking back, I'm like, why would you put um, a group of women in one room, like four women who've just been through trauma? Yeah. So I just heard people crying, like the women crying, the babies. Like it was just like I should have been in a room by myself or something, right? Yeah. And I, I was, my body was frozen from my chest down, uh, from my neck down. And my husband had to leave. My son was born around 10 o'clock at night. They made him leave at midnight because they wouldn't let your partner stay. So when they made him leave, I couldn't even move my body. Mm-hmm. Then they left my son beside me. Oh, I can't move. My partner, they kicked out my husband and my baby's like, you know, inches away from me. And I, he started to cry and I was just like, I need help. So I, I, you know, one of one of the nurses was walking around tending to one of the women. I said, I need help. Can you hold my baby? Can you pick up my baby for me? And she looked at me and she goes, my job is not to carry your baby. And then we oh. walked off. Oh. And mind you, I just had like sur- emergency surgery. I just had a baby for the first time, my first baby. And I, there's nobody there to advocate for me or help me. You kicked mm-hmm. out my person. And long story short, hours later, um, some another nurse came by. And by this time, I was so scared to say anything. She just kind of did a quick look over, like glance at me. And I just wanted to shrink into the sheets. And my son, thankfully, wasn't making any noise. 
And then a few hours later, maybe this is four o'clock. So three nurses have been by. The third nurse is looking at my son. She can't find a heartbeat. And she's like, there's no pulse. Like we need. And so she's like, you know, and by that time I could feel my arms, but I still couldn't get up. And I couldn't feel my legs. And I grabbed my phone, which was like right under my pillow. And I called my husband and I said, you need to come back. There's something happening. And he came back and he, they took my son to the NICU. And um, my husband, he said that uh, he can never, he will never forget that moment. He came in and there was like a team of doctors um, around my son's um, uh, like little cube. Mm-hmm. And so that third nurse caught it in time, but the other two that came in didn't even pay any t- attention, you know, and my son almost died because there was something wrong. I couldn't attend to him and the people who were supposed to help me, I can't move. And so that was my introduction to, to motherhood. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah. So it's like, I just kind of wish that women, you know, you can have those sister conversations where you say about all the beautiful things. But I also think that we need to be a bit more honest with each other um, because if we're not, you're going to have a lot of women leaving those rooms in shock, in trauma, um, because I think society still builds that, you know, you have this birth because, you know, my, (laughs) I'll tell you my ideal, when I thought about giving birth, I wanted to give it in uh, a water, like a pool, you know, to like, (laughs) Shade candles surrounding me. <laughs> I'm a little bit of a hippie, and I that didn't happen. I and um, I felt like someone could have just said, "Hey, sis, this might happen," and mm-hmm. I I would have appreciated that. But mm-hmm. anyway, wow, I'm I'm so sorry you had that experience and and had to deal with that. And I've I've heard so many stories from women that didn't have the beautiful experience they envisioned, you know, every, I want to say every birthing experience, like you said in the beginning is different, but there are so many women that have these stories of where they were, you know, neglected in the hospital girl, we could talk for hours about my experiences being neglected in the hospital, but had nothing to do with childbirth. But I hear you. There needs to be more conversations around this for sure. Absolutely. (laughs) I think with my first, because I was so young, I was 17. I got the, well, you know, the young girl. (laughs) So I got the the bypass. (laughs) By the time I had my second, which I wanted like you to be, you know, in the pool and and all that. Yeah. They were like, yeah, no, (laughs) I think they even told me that it wasn't working at the time or something. It was like, you know, I was still young. Um, and then I had my son in a snowstorm. And, um, so, <laughs> so all three were kind of. They left a mark. <laughs> yes. But we're still here. So. We're still yeah. here. We're still, yeah. we, we've survived. <laughs> yeah, we've survived. Yeah. So, okay. So speaking of survive, how, how has motherhood changed you? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a big question. It's changed everything fundamentally. I used to be a very much a person who just uh, lived in the now. And now I have to kind of whip myself into um, 
Like there's a lot of things that I don't know. And that's really frightening. I mean, I don't know how to swim. No one ever taught me how to swim. I have my driver's license, but the last time I drove was like 15 years ago. And now I have to think about taking lessons again in order to get back on the road. I don't know how to start a campfire. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to do like a lot of things. And I had to learn how to cook uh, because I didn't know how to cook. And, you know, I was very much a, I just, it was just day. I Thinking about the future for me was not something that was part of my being. I just thought I could go tomorrow. And it sounds really harsh to say that, but I mean, <laughs> I was born in a civil war, lived in a refugee camp and uh, grew up in a very chaotic home life. So for me, thinking about the future, it's like the future, what? And then to be responsible for taking care of someone. Um, I think my kids, especially my first, kind of, it was a shock to my sister phys- physically, but also it forced me to address a lot of the trauma that I had decided I was over. And when you have children, just their crying kind of sends you to a, a place where you're just like, you don't, it, it kind of makes you it takes you back to when you were a kid. I think it just kind of triggers something in you. And for me, it was just kind of like, okay, it was a, um, a call to attention. Like you need to pay attention to your body. You need to pay attention to your mind. You need to pay attention to your finances. You need to pay attention to your heart, how you open yourself up because I was very much, I could be a very, um, I'm very good at just cutting off my feelings Mm-hmm. And when you have children, you can't do that. You don't want to teach your children to be like that. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, uh, remember that album by Lauren Hill, the re-education of Lauren Hill? Yeah. <laughs> it really was for me. It was just kind of like, uh, and I think she might've written that album when she had her first Zion. But yeah, I it was like a crash course in life. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still learning. <laughs> never stop learning. Yeah, I get it. Our, our, I feel like our our kids are brought into this world to be our teachers as well. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of um, cultures or generations that you know look at their kids as you know they're supposed to do as they're told and the followers and etc. But I feel like I learn from my kids every day, and whether it be learning how to get through challenges because there's different personalities or whether it be how to understand to be more compassionate or, you know what I mean? Because this generation, their troubles are very different than what we had um, growing up. But I feel like they're definitely our teachers. (laughs) Yes, they are. And I think one of the things that's been great uh, for me is the thing that's hurt the most is that a couple of things. My kids have given me a foundation, like a family. I didn't have a family. I have people, like I have family members, but I didn't have a family. And my kids, I think the most hurtful thing was, I thought that when I had children, my dynamic with my family would have changed, but it was just kind of like an extension. I can be, if you don't like me, you can treat me any kind of way. I can take it. I'm a big girl. But like, if you extend that behavior to my children, for me, that's like, no, Mm -hmm. we're not doing that. 
mm-hmm. because I don't want my children to grow up in the same way that I grew up. Uh, we talk a lot about kids being resilient and kids being able to dust themselves off. And then as adults, we end up in therapy. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> people who are in therapy and mm-hmm. we're in therapy because our childhoods, right? Yeah. And it's not to say that woe is me or a bunch of snowflakes, all that kind of stuff. You know, you mentioned that kids now, they have different challenges. I think it's harder now to be a child. I think it's even through the things that I went through, like being an refugee camp, all those kind of things. I think it really is harder to be a child in the day that we live in now. Yeah. We have less of a village. A lot of us are parenting on our own. And we have these societal expectations of you have to be the best mother, the best employee, the best um you know, your body has to snap back in two seconds. You have to look good for your partner. And you're all supposed to do that without complaining. Because if you complain, well, look what, you know, your mother's fought for. And look, you know, are you saying that you don't want it? You know, maybe we should go back to how it was. And and then you have other people being angry at women for trying to just be able to be independent. Oh, you know, feminism is. And we have all these so much noise. and you know, trying to parent your children on your own, and especially going through this pandemic um, has just been, (laughs) I don't, I, I don't like how we brush off the concerns of our children and dismiss it as you need to build up your resilience. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really bothers me because it's kind of as if we're just uh, abdicating our responsibility and saying, well, you know, we went through crap. You also have to go through crap. I don't know if that's the purpose of being here uh, on this planet. But anyway, I think I went on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. You know, when you talked about, like, for example, our parents and there seems to be this comparative suffering with generations. Right. And. I've done a lot of studying on trauma in the last few years. And it's like, whether it be a small T or a capital T, you don't know someone else's pain capacity. So we can't compare our suffering. We can't compare our hurt. Hurt is hurt. You know, mm-hmm. even if you and I grew up in the same household and experienced trauma, one of us may have turned out okay and been able to, you know, breeze through life. And the other one needs weekly therapy and is struggling with mental health because everyone's capacity is different. Right. Yeah. So we can't really compare, um, you know, someone's struggles to, to ours at the end of the day, we're all struggling with something. I, I read somewhere, I don't remember, I'm probably screwing up the stats a little bit, but it was basically like kids today are consuming in one hour more than the previous generations consumed in 20 years or something like that because of the internet and social media. So I used to be that mom that was like, well, what do you have to complain about? Like, honestly, I try to give you everything, but at the end of the day, they've got this world on social media that we don't see. They've got, you know, these silos at school that we don't see. They have all of these pressures and things that we don't see so we may not fully understand, but that doesn't mean that they're not struggling. It doesn't mean that they're not going through trauma. It doesn't mean that they're not grieving something. And I think this expectation of resilience, it is placed on kids today. And it is, I feel even more harshly placed on black children and children of color, because there's 
like the generational trauma that comes with having to also deal with the pandemic, having to also deal with social media, having to, you know what I mean? It's a lot. It's a lot. And um, I'm glad that you brought up how different it is for black children, because from the time that my son was three years old, I had problems with him in school. He's a December baby. So he started the year he started kindergarten, he was still three and they made me put him in JK. I mean, they've changed that law, but back then it was like, they needed, they were like, he turns three, he has to go to school, even though his pediatrician was like, he's not ready. He was in a classroom with uh, another kid and he had been in daycare before. And, you know, with the occasional, oh, someone bit him or he bit somebody or he stole a toy. That's, you know, the stuff the kids learn when they're learning how to socialize. And um, so he had, there was an incident where a a child in his class, they liked each other and they took the school bus together. And I still can't believe that my three and a half year old was in a school bus. And I remember feeling so sick putting him on the bus and I had a baby. Uh, I had my daughter at the time and it was like, I have to send him to school because if he doesn't go to JK this year, he's going to have to go to SK next year and he's going to be a, a year behind. But this kid, um, Mateo, they liked each other and, you know, they didn't like each other. <laughs> and this kid was older, smaller, older, smaller and white. And my son was bigger, younger and black. And turns out that his teachers had the parents of Mateo didn't like my son playing with their son and would say, so they, the teachers, there was two teachers in the classroom. Somehow the four of them, his parents and the two teachers had come to the conclusion that it was okay to separate the boys. So my son was, had to sit on one side of the classroom and Mateo had to sit on the other side of the classroom. And there was never a conversation that they had with us. And mm-hmm. I got so angry when I found out because I was like, kids, you know, they like each other. He's like, I can't play with Mateo. The teachers won't let me play with Mateo. I'm like, why not? And my son has a speech delay and uh, he's got something called speech apraxia. It's gotten better as he's got older, but back then he couldn't really say many words and mm-hmm. he uh, he couldn't really explain himself. And when he spoke, you, it was really hard to understand what he was saying. And they had decided that this was, this was okay. And mm-hmm. when I found out, we pulled him out of the school and it was a Catholic school and we haven't gone back into the Catholic school board because I was so upset by how he was treated. And since then, it's just been one thing after the other. Um, we've had, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, during the George Floyd, um, after George Floyd's murder. And we were talking about Mr. Floyd and the 2020 and my friend um, is white French from Europe. And he said, and he has a son the same age as my son, but his son is white. And he sent me a comment. He's a good guy. Great person. He made a comment about how, you know, sometimes it made him uncomfortable or something about how uh, people are talking a lot about this. And I have had other friends say the same thing. Like a lot of uh, my white friends have made comments about, Oh, how we're always talking about this and the videos. And I'm like, but okay. But have you had a conversation with your children about how the police treat black people and how they should interact with the police? I said, I had this conversation with my son when he was three and a half years old. And, you know, all of my friends have said, no, 
And I said, well, so why do you think I want to traumatize my children? My mm-hmm. son loved the police. Every time he saw the police, he would stop and, you know, and, and it, it broke my heart because, you know, one of my friends is married to a police officer and we've had these conversations and sometimes she can be, you know, she's, she, it's hard for her to believe it too, because it's like, this is not, you see the videos, you see mm-hmm. the data, you see this isn't anything against any one particular person, but this is stuff that, you know, as a parent, stuff that makes me, that keeps me up at night. And as my son has gotten older, he doesn't like it when his dad leaves the house by himself. Mm-hmm. He wants to go with him or he wants me to go because he doesn't want him driving by his by, by himself. Mm-hmm. And this is something as a 12-year-old, he's had the burden of caring. And, you know, like you mentioned before, our kids are exposed to so much more, you know, the videos of the, you know, the beatings, the killings, the shootings. When Trayvon Martin died, when, when he was killed, I bawled bald. And when you saw the discourse online, of, well, he should have done what he was being told to ask. It was shouldn't it should have just it's like this is a child. And yeah. when you say he should have, he's and, you know, now you see things, the double standards and the hypocrisy. And you know, I come from East Africa and we grew up in, you know, like I was born in the Civil War. Men with guns were scary. And men with guns everywhere are not very different. So this is not in particular about, oh, this is against white cops. This is mm-hmm. not what it is. We see videos of black cops treating, you know, pe- yeah. pushing people around. I just saw a video of a black cop in New York throwing around a homeless person uh, on the train. And so it's like having these concerns and having these worries and having, but not being able to have these conversations in an honest and open way, or just these concerns of how your child is going to be treated in school because they are not, you know, they're black. And the expectation, my teachers, uh, my son's teacher recently said, Oh, your son is a, you know, I see him as a B student. And he said it as if it was a compliment and it bothered me that all the way home, I said to my husband, I said, that was rude. Yeah. You're dismissing him and saying, oh, I see you as a B student and therefore that's all you can give me. And right. that makes me mad. Because yeah. it's like, and I am a kid who grew up, like when we came to Canada, we lived in London. And London at the time was very homogenous. And school was a nightmare. Uh, high school was a nightmare. And I didn't have my parents advocating for me. I didn't have anyone... Uh, speaking up on my behalf in school. And, you know, I managed to get through, but I, part of it, I think is because I'm a girl (laughs) Uh, and I'm also like a light skinned black person and I have blue eyes. And so my experience having that, like, you know, well, I'm not a boy, I'm not a, maybe I'm not as bad or whatever, but my experience was bad. Like it was really hard but I always knew that within education, I could do something for myself. And I stayed in school even after my dad kicked me out when I was like around 16, 16, 17 years old. But this is a reality that we're living in where we're talking more openly about these things, but we're not addressing them. And then mm-hmm. we're kind of 
I think back in the day when we were growing up, we weren't exposed as much. You'd have a teacher treat you a certain kind of way, and then you just kind of kept it moving. We're talking mm-hmm. about this stuff on the news. You're seeing it on Twitter, on Instagram. It's ex- And then it just seemed like, I think back in the day, we could pretend this wasn't what was happening. But now you have the video, you have the proof, but people still don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. And I don't know how you prepare your children for that, right? And some parents don't have to worry about that. And that's a privilege. Yeah. But yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. I, I think when when you're a, a mother that, because I hate to say this, but I've seen it, where you know, not every mother is or has that maternal instinct to nurture. But when you are that mother that every part of the day you're concerned for your child, for their well-being, even when they're inside the house, you know, what's going on in their head mentally, how they're doing emotionally. It's a lot as a, as a parent. I think, you know, people, I remember when I was growing up, there was this assumption that after you turn 18, like your parents don't care about you, but that like, my eldest is turning 25 at the end of the month and my 21 year old, I don't, I don't know if they'll ever leave home. <laughs> They're here. Yeah, well, I mean, this economy. <laughs> <laughs> I have to worry about their well being all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a lot like, it's like that emotional load, that emotional labor that people don't really talk about. I think our, and also my, my parents um, were lucky that we all survived. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I'm praying for and um, I worry about a lot is that what if I don't live long enough to see my children grow up? Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, you don't want to put that stuff out in the universe, but my parents never had that. They had the privilege of seeing their children grow up, even if they decided they didn't want to be parents. <laughs> you know, um, it's not like I asked to be here, but you know, like you said, if you have, if you're connected to your children in that way, when you care about your children, it is a lot um, to carry. But uh, I think for me, I, I, I love being a mother. I think so funny. We're talking more about mother, like we're talking about uh, <laughs> mothering than work, but it's actually kind of when it comes to work, it's made me more, um, it's made me more brave because I'm a person that grew up I not comfortable with confrontation, just kind of like, I'll figure it out on my own. I'll sort it out. But since having kids and having to like challenge those teachers and say, why would you make that decision? You know, when I went to the school and pulled them out and I spoke to the principal, I go, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you like ask the parents to meet? Like this was not like a a situation where my son was attacking your child. Mm -hmm. This is because the white parents said, I don't like that black kid. And you said, okay, we'll keep the black kid on one side of the room. This was in like 2014 in Toronto. Mm -hmm. You know, like how is that a thing that you actually let slide? Where in in, uh, society can you make those kind of decisions? I'll tell you where. (laughs) In segregated uh, societies, right? And you're creating a segregated society in a classroom when you are a religious school. That to me was like the thing that I was like, I will not abide by that. So yeah, having children for me has made me more brave and also more brave in my work as a journalist, because I want to make the world, this world needs to be better for Mm -hmm. our children. It really does. And when I was growing up and I heard that 
you know, like one of my favorite songs is uh, Whitney Houston's I Believe the Children Are Our Future. Because I honestly thought she was singing to me at that time <laughs> because I was having such a rough childhood. And I would listen to it. I'm like, she's singing to me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I want to make the world a better place for our kids. They There's a lot of stuff that's happening that they didn't cause. And, and I really don't want... Has to just be like, oh, well, kids are resilient. They'll Mm -hmm. figure it out. No, why can't we, like you were talking about trauma. You don't know how people are going to experience the trauma. And why should we want people to be traumatized? (laughs) It's because it's become like the default. Well, you know, life kind (laughs) of (laughs) sucks. It shouldn't be that way. I think a huge part of, what has changed my parenting is studying trauma and I guess trauma informed care, because when we're trauma ignorant, when we brush off people's experiences and gaslight them and tell them it wasn't that bad, or, you know, it it couldn't have been like that or what have you, we impact our children. And I feel like the more that I put in the effort to understand, and then I can basically practice that with my children, it allows me to have more compassion outside in the world. Yeah. I like how you put that, but, and that also like how you move in the world and being able to, I want my kids to question me. I want my kids to challenge me because they're going to be, they're going to need those skills when they go out into the real world. It's not like do as I say, it's my rules, my house, you have to do everything the way that I say it. And I always tell my kids that adults don't know everything. And I say Mm -hmm. adults, they have the power over you, but that doesn't mean that we know everything. Mm-hmm. We don't. And that doesn't mean that what we say goes. You have to be able to teach your children to stand up for themselves, for them to spot the bad person in the room. Mm-hmm. You can't expect, you can't tell kids to listen to grownups, don't challenge grownups. And those are skills like we're going to need when they leave your home. Yeah. I always tell my kids, it's how you say something. Yeah. You can challenge me, of course. I get it wrong all the time. I'm being able to apologize to my kids when I get it wrong. I'm sorry I yelled. That's not how we should communicate. Mm-hmm. That's it. I'm sorry. Not but. Well, yeah. you did this and <laughs> da, da, da. And, you know, I'm sorry you feel like I... No, apologize. So yeah. they can. they know what an apology looks like. Yeah. And they know that it's not a one-sided situation because I'm big and I have the power and they're small and they're insignificant. Like what kind of, like, yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> and just using your, cause I said so, and I'm going to take your iPad away. And obviously <laughs> we all have to make decisions that work for our homes, but I think it's a real, even as a person, I wouldn't talk to any of my friends like that. Right. How can I talk to my children like that? Right. How is it okay for me to, to treat my children like that when I don't treat my colleagues like that, when I don't treat my partner like that, right? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and yeah, boundaries and expectations, all of that. We speak about that all the time. And I get it wrong, you know, 99% of the time. I don't know how to, I've never been a parent. I always tell my son, I've never been a parent to a 12-year-old. Yeah. You know, what do you think that I need to work on? You know, yeah. or what am I getting right? Or what am I doing wrong? And it's not like I'm trying to be his friend. I am his mother, but he also needs a voice and I have to empower him. I'm not going to belittle him because I know the world is already belittling him. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. always, it's already like making him feel 
as if because of the color of his skin, he's less than. So I'm going to add on to that. Yeah. No. Yeah. Every, everyone, everyone wants to be seen, heard and understood. And that, in, yes. that includes their children. So before we go to the final segment, um, if you want to tell people where they can stay connected with you, where they can learn more about you and from you. Okay. I'm on Twitter, although my account is not protected because Twitter is Twittering <laughs> at Namshine and also on Instagram at Namshine or tvo.org. Um, you can find my stuff there as well. Awesome. So I will definitely have like all of your links in the detailed section below the episode so they can just <laughs> click and connect with you directly. For the final segment, um, it's kind of like a rapid fire. I ask mm-hmm. you some quick questions and you can answer one word, one sentence. We don't like to go into a box here. So if you feel okay. that you need to expand, <laughs> feel free to do so. Sounds good. Okay. Um, name a book that has changed or greatly impacted your life. The Four Agreements. Okay. What's one of the most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And that could be of time, money, energy. Going to therapy. Mm, love it. Yeah. What have you become better at saying no to in the last five years? Yikes. <laughs> That's one of my New Year's resolutions, saying no. <laughs> uh, I'm still learning how to say no. Oh, I the, the no that I am, I've learned to say in the last five years, uh, putting up boundaries with family members where there's this expectation that because your family, certain behavior is acceptable. And for Mm -hmm. me, it's been heartbreaking. It's been lonely, but I've learned, I'm learning how to forge a path on my own. Mm -hmm. If it means that I am treated with love and care. Mm. I love that. I've had to implement in the last couple of years, to remove the title and address the behavior because Ooh. oftentimes we allow family to get away with toxic behavior because they're quote unquote family. family. But yeah. if you remove the title of mother, sister, brother, what have you, and yeah. you address the actual behavior, it's very different. I love that. I might steal that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Last but not least, what do you wish women would do more of? I wish women would know how powerful they are and how worthy they are in just being who they are. I've been talking to my daughter a lot. She's nine years old and she already has a lot of questions. She tells me that, you know, her classmates say she can't do certain things because she's a girl. And I'm like, we're in 2023. No, you can do whatever you want. Um, I want her to, like, I want her, I mean, for both of my kids, but I want her to just, not grow up the way that I did where she feels like she has to dim her light to make other people comfortable where she feels as if she um, is not worthy, that her voice isn't important, that what she brings to the table is surface. And I want her to just be whatever she wants and to make as much noise and take up as much space and to be running those tables, you know, um, she's got so much spunk. She's so sassy. She's so creative, loving and joyful. I just want her, you know, the world is yours. Mm -hmm. I want her to know that. And I wish more women knew that. I love it. I love it. I love it. 
Thank you so much, Nam, for this long overdue conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for like the opportunity. It's really it's wonderful. And to share this time with you together, I really appreciate your patience and your, you know, just inviting me, uh, wanting to talk to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And like I said, it like I appreciate you as a person. I appreciate your energy, your time. And if there's any way that I could be of value to anything that you're doing, I would be honored to help. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Same, 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 same. To all you healers out there until next time, subscribe on all platforms and don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple podcast. And thanks to each and every one of you that continues to listen each week to help the show globally rank in the top 1.5%. And that's out of over 3 million podcasts. If you want to join the community of healers, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter at awakamystilettos.com and receive a free copy of my gratitude journal, or you can grab a copy of any of my books available online wherever books are sold. I'd love to challenge you to share this episode with two mothers, two mothers that would receive value from hearing Nam's wisdom. Feel free to screenshot this episode and you can tag Nam at Namshine, N-A-M, S-H-I-N-E, and you can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. So let's continue to heal 